0: Today's lecture is one of those lectures that's co-sponsored here, so I'm going to turn over the introductory duties um, to someone else. So I'm here to tell you that uh, our co-sponsor today, and we're grateful for their support, is the Historical Society of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. And we're very fortunate today to have Andy Clark, a current board member of the organization, who is going to introduce our program. Andy. I'd like to uh, start by thanking Paul and in particular uh, thanking the Virginia Historical Society for allowing us to be here today. I saw on the uh, Historical Society's website that its mission connecting people to America's past through the unparalleled story of Virginia and collecting, preserving, and interpreting the Commonwealth's history is really the core mission of the Historical Society and it in many ways is the same mission for the United States uh, District Court or the Historical Society for the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Our society, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it as part of the intro, was formed in 2006 at the request of the court. We have a board of directors consisting of judges who sit in the three divisions of the Eastern District, the Alexandria Division, the Norfolk Division, and the Richmond Division, and we also have attorneys who serve on that board as well. And if I tell you the story of the the historical society, as I'll call it for my intro remarks, it's a story of really some very key people that helped the society get its start in 2006. And I would like to thank those specific individuals. The first is U.S. District Judge James R. Spencer. He was the chief judge uh, for the Eastern District in 2006 and was instrumental in helping our society get its start. There were several judges involved in this project uh, that we're gonna hear about today, the book project and the society itself, but there are a couple I think that deserve note. A U.S. District Judge, Claude M. Hilton, who sits in the Alexandria Division, was instrumental. Uh, U.S. District Judge Henry Koch Morgan Jr., who sits in the Norfolk Division, was instrumental. And U.S. Bankruptcy Judge Douglas O. Tice, who uh, retired in 2013, was really instrumental, and he was a bankruptcy judge here in Richmond. And last but not least, on the stage, U.S. District Judge Henry E. Hudson. Judge Hudson uh, is, as many of you may know, a a long and distinguished uh, public servant, he sat as a jurist on the uh, Eastern District of Virginia, and he's also a published author. Another person that I have to note is Colin Haidt. he's sitting in the front row today. Colin's a distinguished trial lawyer at Hershler-Fleischler. He regularly practices in what all of us lawyers affectionately call the rocket docket. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it's always affectionate, but it is the rocket docket, <laughs> and I will tell you, uh, everyone across the country knows that. Colin served as the president of our society. From 2006 until 2014, we didn't have any term limits, so Colin uh, was was our long and distinguished president before passing the torch to Steve Jackson in 2014. And last, I would also like to mention Chief Judge uh, Rebecca Smith. Chief Judge Smith uh, is also a U.S. District Court judge, and she is a great supporter of the society. In terms of a very brief history before we turn the, the, the program over, the society started in 2006. We had to incorporate the society. We also went through the process of getting our 501c3 status, so we are a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. And then once all of that occurred, the society wanted to take on a project uh, to document the 200-plus rich, 200-year-plus uh, history, rich history of the, uh, the United States Distri- District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. We started that project and were working at the time with a graduate student at the College of William & Mary and he was considering using the project as a way to get his thesis. What we quickly discovered was with 200 years of history and an amazing amount of, of cases and things to talk about, we really needed to find someone with a passion for not only the history of the court but understands the dynamics of the history of Virginia that were occurring when these cases were being tried. And that is where I was very fortunate in that I reached out to one of my law school professors, uh, Professor William Hamilton Bryson, and asked him, is there somebody in Richmond that could could do the job? And the person he said was John O. Peters, who sits on the stage with you. So we were very fortunate in that in 2010, John agreed to come on board with what I will call our journey toward getting a published book. And it was a journey, not only because we had to form a society but we then worked with John, and he did an amazing job. In less than two years, he wrote our book. We then worked, uh, and I had no experience with uh, publishers, editors, or archivists, but now I can say that I do through this project, because we had to find all of those sorts of folks to help us. And ultimately, our, our friends at Dietz Press, Word Smith is here today. They agreed to publish our book, and happily, uh, we now have a published book, and it's been really just a, a great project. So with that being said, I would like to now secede the floor, or in Judge Hudson's case, I would say secede the courtroom to him, because that's his normal venue, but I would now like to give uh, the venue over to uh, Judge Hudson and John as they talk about, from Marshall to Massawi Federal Justice in the Eastern District of Virginia.
1: Thank you very much, Andy. As he mentioned to you, John Peters is not the first author to attempt to capture the rich and at times controversial history of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Our court was one of the first courts in America, and it's one that's got a history with a tremendous amount of depth. Other authors tried to capture that history, found it to be an overwhelming project. So, after a couple of years of frustration, we turn to John Peters. John is not only a lawyer, he's also an historian and a published author. And the fruits of his work is the book from Marshall de Massawi, The History of Our Court. I'm sure you will find it exciting, it's rich in history, it's got a lot of intrigue to it, and it's a darn good read. Now John, tell us first, knowing other people couldn't handle this project, Why did you decide to take on this (laughs) Herculean (laughs) task? You weren't just a glutton for punishment, were you?
2: No, it was no punishment at all. I think it's fair to say that I jumped at the opportunity to work on this project. And I did it for the reason that that any writer would want to do this book. Because very simply put, it's a great story. And that's what any writer looks for, is a great story. if you're working with something of that nature, it's, it's, a, it's both an honor, or it's not only a challenge, but it's an honor to be able to deal with a history like this. So, it was a thoroughly enjoyable experience.
1: Now, for those out here who enjoy researching history, tell us a little bit about, about how you got a handle on this huge volume of material in such a short period of time.
2: Most of the books that I've been involved with have involved massive amounts of material and long histories, histories of institutions that have lasted for a long time. I'll just mention Hollywood Cemetery, Virginia's Historic Courthouses, The History of the Richmond Bar. Uh, All of those require you to work with massive amounts of material covering a long period of time and oftentimes a diverse subject matter. So Uh, you develop certain habits and certain approaches to handling that material that pay off in the long run. In this case, first I will tell you that I always work from a detailed out chronological outline. While I'm doing my research, I pin everything onto a chronological outline, just one sentence with a brief reference to the source of that information. And what I ended up with in this case, I think was 31 single page pages of uh, outline. You then use your outline, you morph your outline into, uh, I mean, you morph your chronology into an outline. That's where you determine where your chapter breaks are going to be, how you're going to break down the material and organize it in such a way that it makes sense to the reader. You group things within those subject matters. So the first decision I had to make, and it was a critical one, is under my contract. I was charged with writing about the, the notable cases over a 220-year period, which gives rise to the question, what, how do you define a notable case, and where are you going to find them? I made an arbitrary decision very early on that a notable case would be a case that had been written up or had been covered in the New York Times or the Washington Post. I did a search under every judge's name, And what I got was literally hundreds, if not thousands, of newspaper articles. And I had this wonderful court librarian in Norfolk named Karen Johnson, who took the names of the parties and the dates of the coverage, the newspaper coverage, and matched those up with the reported legal opinions. So I had both the newspaper coverage and the actual formal opinions of the court, not only at the trial level, but at the appellate level. I eventually obtained copies of those opinions, and would plug each one into the chronological outline as I moved along. I think I read probably well over 600 opinions, and uh, probably 300 cases find their way into the uh, book. It—it it was experience, frankly. It was having done this before and knowing how to approach it. You could. The, the glory of it was that I ended up with both the newspaper coverage and the formal legal opinions. Equally valuable, because it's only through the newspaper coverage that you find out the nicknames of the witnesses, and the judge's comments from the bench, the local color, that sort of thing. You don't find that in reported legal opinions.
1: But John, in addition to having an historical perspective, you practiced as a lawyer in that court for many, many years. Did that give you some unique insight in determining what cases are important and which ones are not?
2: You know, I've, I'd written about the courts in bits and pieces over a long period of time, perhaps going back as long as forty years, but I didn't really have a comprehensive picture, except for the really critical cases: the Burr treason trial, the segregation cases, the cases in recent years involving the Dalkon Shield and. The Westinghouse uranium contracts and uh, the pollution of the James River, keep Uh I was aware of those cases, but frankly it was my experience as a lawyer that probably helped me more in reading and understanding the cases themselves. When I was in law school I really didn't understand why my professors were asking me brief cases Salient facts combined with the holding. You know, many anybody's a lawyer out there remembers the drill from, from law school. I always wondered why they were asking me to do that, and I never really understood it. Didn't understand it while I was practicing law. After I began working, after I began working on this book, I really learned. It took me over 50 years, but I really learned for the first time why it was important to brief cases. So, uh, that was a the, one of the critical skills.
1: I know one of your observations has been, John, that. Uh... Uh, Writing in the history of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, you thought was a very effective vehicle for talking about the history of jurisprudence in America.
2: It is. I think it's more than that. I think think that writing about the Eastern District of Virginia or the history of any court is probably the most viable ways to teach Virginia or American history. And the reason for that is that ultimately, most, in, most important issues in our culture or in our society find their way to court. I mean, just think about it for a while. Abortion, gun rights, health care, enemy combatants, public corruption. We've had a healthy dose of that recently in the Eastern <laughs> District of Virginia. Uh, so but the important thing is and this this is why some experience with Virginia and American history comes becomes important the history of an institution any institution but especially a court is only important if you place it in context you've got to be able to tie those cases to events that were taking place and and issues that were alive in the culture and society in which you were writing about. As an example, if you were going to be writing about the admiralty cases in the Eastern District of Virginia, it was absolutely essential that you knew about the wars in Europe and the activities of the French and Spanish and English fleets in the West Indies and the emerging Latin American republics. You cannot understand the admiralty cases in the Eastern District without that context, and so you've got to be able to tell that as part of the story.
1: Most people reviewing the history of the 18th and 19th centuries tend to focus more on prominent members of the executive or legislative branch rather than the judicial branch. Why has the judicial branch been so overshadowed by those other branches in the reporting of the history of Virginia?
2: I think that that in the history of Virginia, that... Well, number one, unless you're talking about the federal courts, it's rare that the Virginia cases, the state court cases, have really had a great impact on society as a whole. The cases in the federal courts have. Um, But I think during the early days of the Republic, particularly when they were adopting the Constitution, promulgating the first Judiciary Act, people naturally looked to the Founding Fathers who were essentially legislative people, statesmen. Uh, They were not judges. Uh, We're getting close to a tie-in with the Eastern District of Virginia now because the one jurist in American history who probably had the most impact on making the judicial branch of government equal with the executive uh, and uh, legislative branches was John Marshall. When we start talking about Marshall, (laughs) yeah, I could go on forever. Well, that's a
1: most convenient place to begin, since he really was the one that inspired so much of the basic principles of constitutional law in America today. Let's start talking about uh, uh, John Marshall. He was uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, but he was also uh, a trial judge, was he not? That's
2: something that... I I realized fully for the first time while I was writing this book, and it's something that I don't think that most laymen and most lawyers realize even today. John Marshall was appointed the fourth Chief Justice in uh, 1801, and he died in 1835. He was Chief Justice of the United United States for those 34 years. And as I say, he was probably the individual who, who in the history of this land probably had the most dramatic impact on the shape and powers of our federal government today. If Thomas Jefferson had appointed the fourth Chief Justice of the United States, we would be looking at a very different government today, a very different federal government. But at the same time, the thing that people don't realize is that the entire time that John Marshall sat on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, he also sat as a trial judge in the Eastern District, what was then the circuit court for the Eastern District of Virginia. It was named the Circuit Court because every Supreme Court justice rode circuit. And in those days, you really rode circuit. I mean, it meant horses and inconvenience and discomfort and all that sort of thing. When he was Chief Justice, Marshall typically spent two months a year in Washington. He spent 10 months a year, either in Virginia or in North Carolina, riding circuit as a trial judge. That meant that he impaneled juries, instructed juries, sentenced criminals, ruled on the admission of evidence, all the things that federal trial justices do today. And in the course of that, he wrote a number of opinions. Uh, and uh, you get a very different view of Marshall as a trial judge from the view that you receive as, a, as what Americans refer to now as the great chief justice. Uh, and was, he sat on a number of very, very critical uh, cases while being a judge in the Eastern District.
1: Now, tell us a little bit about the structure of the federal courts back in, that, uh, back in those days. In addition to the Supreme Court, you had these circuit courts that were also trial courts, but explain the dynamics of the two.
2: There were three levels of courts under the first Judiciary Act. There were district courts, which had very limited jurisdiction, petty crimes, but one important aspect of their jurisdiction was admiralty cases. Then you had the circuit courts, which were the primary federal trial courts. There was nothing between the circuit courts and the Supreme Court. There were no federal appeals courts in that day. There were no, we all know now the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. There were no circuit courts of appeals. There were no appeals courts in the federal system. Cases went directly from the circuit courts to the United States uh, Supreme Court. A Supreme Court justice was assigned to every circuit court and sat on the circuit court with, one, with the district judge for that circuit. And so here you have the Chief Justice of the United States spending most of his time as a trial
1: judge. Life today for a Supreme Court justice is pretty cushy, (laughs) uh, to say the least. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the accommodations and lifestyle of a Supreme Court justice back at the age of John Marshall.
2: Well, first, you have to understand that during the first decade of the Supreme Court, it was a very weak institution. I think think there were some years during the first decade where the Supreme Court only rendered one opinion per year. Uh, which today seems unimaginable. It was not totally clear at that point whether the Supreme Court had the power of review of judicial review of not only statutes, but also federal statutes, but state statutes. Uh, so it was recognized generally as an extremely weak institution. Uh, it, the justices when they met in Washington and even during, well, All the justices during the first decade wrote separate opinions, what are called seriatim opinions. Uh, And so you didn't have any unified opinion of the court that you could look to. Uh, Marshall, when he became Chief Justice, not only under his leadership, the court adopted a number of rulings that have affected our lives to this very day in very dramatic fashions. Uh, But they, during Marshall's Day, the two months that they were in Washington, they all stayed together in the same rooming house, and they scarcely engaged in any outside social activities. It was all introspective, and they began to write collective opinions for the first time. In other words, you would have an opinion of the United States Supreme Court, not a half dozen separate opinions by the individual judges. Um,
1: I assume back in those days it was a very highly compensated position.
2: <laughs> no, none of the. Uh, well, in fact, uh, well up into the. And you may have something to contribute here, but <laughs> 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 maybe my wife would. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but uh, you know, there, federal judges uh, and even and Supreme Court members receive very meager conference compensation for for years and years Uh, in fact uh, uh, it was oftentimes a toss-up as to whether a politician would offer to become a federal judge or elect to run for Congress again Uh, so it was not a particularly lucrative undertaking
1: you know John a lot of the cases that uh, the Supreme Court will hear this session as well as some prior sessions turn on principles that really originated with the pen of John Marshall when it comes to separation of powers and the various constitutional authority that each of the branches of government have. Talk about that for a minute.
2: I certainly don't hold myself out as a Supreme Court scholar or even a Marshall scholar, uh, but I think I did list about six cases in the book that I think have led to Marshall being characterized as the great Chief Justice. First is Marbury versus Madison, uh, which is the case which, Supreme Court had held that it had the right to review statutes uh, adopted by Congress. Uh, you've got the Gibbons versus Ogden uh, case, which uh, solidified Congre- uh, Congress's right to regulate interstate commerce. You've got McCulloch v. Maryland, uh, which in essence said that Congress had the implied power Uh, to to implement the express powers of the Constitution. And you had uh, Cohen's versus Virginia, which upheld the right of the Supreme Court to review state criminal cases in which a constitutional issue was uh,
1: alleged to arise. And of course, we have Marbury versus Madison that kind of defied the separation of powers between the various branches of government. Yes. One of the more intriguing parts of your book, uh, John, deals with the relationship between John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, they had somewhat of a strained relationship, to, to be mild about. it. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the genesis of that, and what kind of a relationship did they have, both familiar as well as professional?
2: One of Marshall's leading biographers described the relationship. And I, I haven't forgotten the term. I hope I can quote it correctly. He, he described it as an unrelenting mutual hatred. <laughs> and it, there may be an even a little understatement there. They hated, they hated each other. They were cousins. They were distant cousins. But they hated each other, and it was in large marsha, major, measure political, and it was in large measure personal. They just simply did not like each other. Uh, The political part of it is that we tend to think of the founding fathers as an homogenous group of people who all thought alike. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, let's let's look at Marshall and Washington and Madison. They were Federalists. They preferred a strong national government. Jefferson and Henry and Mason, they were anti-Federalists. They were states rights, weak federal government people. And the political battles of the first two decades in this country were fought not only in the Constitutional Convention but in the courts and in the Congress Uh, and let me alert you to the fact that the battle between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist still rages today. I mean, we see it in the federal courts of this country every day. And so it is the one constant is the difference between these two philosophies of strong federal government, central government, limited federal government, more powers to the state. And it was that way in the 1790s and it's to a large degree that way today.
1: We'll turn a moment to the historic trial of Aaron Burr, but you mentioned in your book that the tension between Jefferson and Marsha really came to the forefront during that trial and some of the run up to it. Tell them a little bit about that, John.
2: Two things that I'd like to mention first about the, the trial of Aaron Burr for treason. And I think it's important to do this because to a large degree, the trial of Aaron Burr has been, I think, overlooked in history, and particularly where it took place uh, here in Richmond. Uh, first the trial of Aaron Burr for treason was probably the most important single event ever to take place in the city of Richmond you you could mention the surrender of the city to the Yankees in 1865 but I think the the Burr trial still ranks right up there at the head of the the batch Uh, with due apologies to O.J. Simpson (laughs) Uh, I think the Burr trial may well be the most important trial that ever took place in the United States. Here you have a former Vice President of the United States being prosecuted for treason, the prosecution being initiated by Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, with John Marshall, his arch enemy, sitting on the bench as a trial judge. I wonder how many satellite trucks that would bring to <laughs> <laughs> would bring to Capitol Square, and it took place in the Capitol building, and the world was here to watch. Uh, the grand jury was composed entirely of Jefferson's political friends, including the Speaker of the House, John Randolph of Roanoke, senators, former governors. Uh, The legal talent in the case was probably the greatest array of legal talent ever gathered in one courtroom in America. Now, what did Aaron Burr do to deserve all this attention? Well, no one knows exactly, but what he was accused of, number one, Jefferson blamed Burr not withdrawing when the election of 1800 was thrown into the House of Representatives. Burr had run as the vice presidential candidate with Jefferson and because of the quirky way in which the Electoral College votes were counted in those days, they tied and the election was thrown into the House of Representatives. It took over 30 ballots to decide that Jefferson was President of the United States. Jefferson never forgave Burr. He felt that Burr should have resigned. He didn't. You've got to recall that Burr had also killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. So when Jefferson heard from his commander, General Wilkinson, in New Orleans that his city was under threat from a force led by Burr, he seized the opportunity to have Burr prosecuted. Very little is known about what Burr actually did. Uh, the one thing it was known is that he and an Irish nobleman named Harmon Blanerhassett uh, plotted to have what turned out to be fewer than 100 men gather on Blannerhassett's island in the middle of the Ohio River, which was then part of Virginia. Uh, They were provided with provisions and arms and left for some place in the West. The thinking was that to gain his reputation and power uh, after the duel with Hamilton, he left for the West in an effort to rehabilitate himself. Uh, The critical fact here is that Burr was never on the island. The definition of treason, which is set forth in the Constitution very precisely, is, and I'm not quoting exactly here, but essentially it is waging war against the United States or adhering to its enemies with aid and comfort. So there's this element of waging war in there. The main issue in the Burr trial, as it turned out, was whether the the United States was going to, going to adopt the British doctrine of constructive treason. Now, under the British doctrine, anyone who had been engaged in the plot, who had been engaged in the conspiracy, would have been considered a participant in the crime. even though they had not taken up arms or done anything of that sort. Just the plotting of the treason would have made them guilty of treason. Marshall ultimately ruled in the Burr trial that no, because of the definition in the Constitution of waging war, we cannot say that you can be found guilty of treason when you weren't even present on the island when the plot was alleged to have taken place. It was on a motion to exclude large portions of the evidence in the trial. The evidence was included and the jury had to conclude that they didn't have enough evidence on which to convict Burr. Let me assure you, it did little to enhance the relationship between Marshall and and Jefferson. (laughs) I mean, in fact, it had been bad and then it even got even worse within a few years jefferson was sued personally in the circuit court for the eastern district of virginia and in this case marshall actually ruled in jefferson's favor so all was not all was not lost
1: but to put this into context john back in those days in the dialogue between federalists and anti-federalists the charge of treason was fairly common was it not I mean, it. it uh...
2: I really do not. I, I, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Okay. I, I don't know whether there were many other tr- charges of treason. Turning to the Civil War era, explain how that uh, affected the structure of the federal courts in Virginia.
2: And it affected about as drastically as it could be affected. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Virginia was. It, it, Virginia was one of only two states that had both Confederate and federal courts sitting within its borders. Uh, The federal judge in Richmond, James Halliburton, when the the South seceded, he resigned as federal judge and became the Confederate judge. He ultimately swore in Jefferson Davis. Norfolk fell to Union forces in 1862. And Alexandria was always in Union hands. The loyal loyalist government of Governor Pierpont was sitting in Alexandria throughout the war. And President Lincoln appointed a federal judge there to begin sitting in 1863. So you had both Confederate and federal courts sitting within the borders.
1: Explain to him what the uh last battle of the Civil War was all about
2: (laughs) it occurred 14 years after the war but it's a very appropriate uh, appropriate uh, description general general Custis Lee Robert E Lee's son sued the federal government for possession of the Arlington estate in northern Virginia in 1879 in federal district court. Now, can you imagine the emotions that that generated? By then, the Arlington Estate was the hallowed grounds of Arlington National Cemetery, with many burials of Union dead from the Civil War. The Arlington Estate had been seized by the federal government for non-payment of taxes. The catch was that it was tough to pay the taxes because you had to pay them in person. (laughs) And there were not many Lees who wanted to show up in Arlington to pay their taxes at the time. And so they went unpaid. The federal government seized the property. Uh, In actuality, the, the court ultimately ruled in favor of the Lee family, but Congress found that to be an unacceptable result and ultimately it resulted in a a congressional settlement where the federal government actually acquired uh, title after paying the Lee family a sum in compensation for the property.
1: Well, John, no discussion of federal judges in the Eastern District of Virginia would be complete (laughs) without talking about John Curtis Underwood.
2: You know, we've got federal judges who are have been real heroes, and we've got federal judges who've been controversial, but no federal judge in the history of the state of Virginia has ever been more controversial than John Curtis Underwood. Uh, as I, John, Underwood was appointed by Lincoln to be the federal judge in Alexandria, and throughout the war he was engaged mostly in cases to confiscate the property of, uh, uh, of the rebels, who's property the, the Union could reach and after the war John Curtis Underwood was the federal judge who spearheaded the efforts to prosecute Jefferson Davis and approximately 30 other Confederate leaders including many generals including Jubal Early and James Longstreet and extra Billy Smith and uh, a number of others for treason uh, he was the one who sort of forced through the indictments. As you all know, I think the, the proceedings against Jefferson Davis lasted for several years. He was actually confined for a long time at Fort Story. Uh, ultimately they went away. They were null prosped by the, by the federal government. The proceedings against Robert E. Lee and the other Confederate leaders went nowhere because uh, Lee appealed to General Grant on the basis that it was his understanding, and Grant's as well, that the terms of surrender had incorporated a provision that there would be no retribution. To make a long story short, General Grant interceded with President Johnson, and it's rumored that he even threatened to resign his commission if those proceedings were pursued, and they were not pursued. There's no record of any further proceedings beyond that point. John Curtis Underwood, during the course of Reconstruction was what was known as a radical Republican. In order to regain full admission to the Union and get out from under military rule, Virginia had to adopt a new constitution. I think the convention began in 1868 and it was ultimately ratified in 1870. But the chairman of the convention that adopted the new Virginia Constitution was John Curtis Underwood. And to this day, it remains known as the Underwood Constitution. Now, among white Virginians of his day, he was the most reviled person in the state of Virginia. And it stayed that way for well over half a century. In fact, Virginia politicians for over half a century set about to, their major life's work was to undo what John Curtis Underwood had done. In referring to his court, John Curtis Underwood described his court, and this is telling, he described it as an advanced judicial picket station in a foreign country. Um, And so that's the way things looked to him at the end of the Civil War. Uh, To show you how reviled, I've got to read this because I can't remember it all. But there's a great quote it's one of those quotes that when an author finds them he just jumps for joy and says Eureka and uh, William Cameron the editor of the Petersburg newspaper in writing about and a future governor of Virginia incidentally uh, summoned all his journalistic skills when he called Underwood and I'm quoting Absurd, blasphemous, cowardly, devilish, fanatical, ghoulish, horrible, ignorant, Jacobinical, Yankee, zero. Unquote. <laughs> 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 and, I, and, I, and and you know a great many Virginians viewed John Curtis Underwood precisely that way.
1: <laughs> well John, that sounds like some of the letters we get from litigants today. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn that to the modern era. Not every decision made by the U.S. District Courts in Virginia were well received by the public and in that vein, let's move to the desegregation era. Talk a little bit about the impact that that had and some of the major decisions.
2: Well, it all happened during my lifetime and the lifetimes of a number of you in the audience. It began in 19... Well, it began before that, but the Constitution of Virginia that provided, in so many words, that no They used the word Negro. They said no white or Negro child will be educated in the same schools. And that had been the way of life in Virginia. So let's keep in mind a couple of things when we're talking about the segregation cases. The desegregation cases changed the face of America and Virginia's way of life. It was just that simple. That's what was at stake. Before the Brown decision in 1954, separate but equal was the established doctrine upon which all Virginians relied for determining the the legal relationship of the relations and their of the races and their schools. Separate but equal, equal was always a myth in Virginia. I mean, schools were not; they were. Separate, but they were by no means equal and there's a long line of litigation in the federal district court for the Eastern District of Virginia To say that says just that these schools are not equal Uh, A new generation of more aggressive relatively young African-American attorneys including Richmonders Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson decided to approach desegregation from a different perspective. They were no longer to accept separate but equal as the appropriate doctrine for determining the legality of separation of the races in the school. And they attacked segregation on a constitutional basis, saying the separation of the races itself is unconstitutional. That led the first well, first significant case in Virginia that involved that line of attack was the Davis case from Prince Edward County. It was decided by the, a three-judge panel of the district court in 1972, and it found segregation to be perfectly lawful. Uh, you had anthropologists and psychiatrists and psychologists and educators all testifying for both sides and ultimately the court decided that no segregation's legal because and I, again I'm going to paraphrase here because it declares on the way of life in Virginia and two is part of the mores of the people So, what's involved in the Davis case? a way of life in Virginia and the mores of the people. The Davis case went up to the Supreme Court with the Brown case. It's an alphabetical accident that it wasn't Davis versus Prince Edward County instead of Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. They were all decided on one day by the Supreme Court And the Supreme Court, in a relatively brief, unanimous opinion said, this is unconstitutional. You can't do this. The first line of attack in Virginia was massive resistance. Once separate but equal was gone, there was was nothing left. You're either going to integrate the schools or you're going to massively resist. Massive resistance was a doctrine that was promulgated essentially by the Byrd political machine. And in 19, Brown was decided in 54, and in a year or two later, the Virginia General Assembly adopted a package of massive resistance legislation one element of which was a pupil placement plan, uh, whereas you would have a board that would place students in the school. At this stage, the burden was always on the black parents to achieve integration. They would have to bring suit or do something. And I've got to say here that it was up to the federal judges to do it. Had there been no federal judges who were willing to act in Virginia at this time, nothing would have happened in response to Brown. No state court ever took any action to implement the Brown decision. Judge Hoffman in Norfolk in 1959 uh, ruled that 17 black students in Norfolk should go to predominantly white schools. They became known as the Norfolk 17, the class of 1959 at their high, at the White High School became known as the Lost Class of 1959 because Governor J. Lindsay Allman closed down those schools in Norfolk as well as the schools in Charlottesville and Front Royal. Within a couple of years the federal court said it was un- unconstitutional to close the schools. Then the, Cases became cases that dealt with the issue of freedom of choice, which was the other, the next method du jour to try to achieve integration. As it turned out, it was practically ineffectual because few black students chose to go to white students, few white students chose to go to black schools. And that led to the Green case from New Kent County. And in that case, ultimately, the Supreme Court said, freedom of choice doesn't work. You've got to integrate your schools. Take affirmative actions to integrate your schools. There is a vast difference between making segregation unlawful and telling people that they have to integrate their schools. Ultimately, this led to the Bradley case in Richmond. I think is known to many of you out there. That's the case in which Judge Marriage ruled that the Henrico, Chesterfield, and Richmond school system should be merged for the, I can't remember, 1971-72 school year. Uh, The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed Judge Marriage. Uh, It went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed the Fourth Circuit on a tie vote, and the justice who did not vote was Lewis Powell from Richmond, who had been a former chair of the Richmond School Board. No one knows how Justice Powell would have voted. Uh, If he'd voted to reverse the Fourth Circuit and reinstate Judge Marriage's rulings, we'd be living in a very different community uh, right now, I think. Uh, But it was a saga that went on for 22 years. We went from freedom of choice to segregated schools unconstitutional, massive resistance, uh, freedom of choice, I mean, uh, pupil placement ruled unconstitutional, freedom of choice, ultimately produced, in essence a unitary school system to rejecting the idea of merging the Richmond-Henrico and Chesterfield uh, schools. Um, I think that's it.
1: Let me just add one personal footnote to this. I'm proud to say that Judge Marriage was a personal friend of mine. In fact, I have his portrait in his courtroom. And whether or not you agree with his decision, it's tear-rendering for him and his wife to describe to you what they went through as a result of that uh, that decision; that the reverberations were, were were thunderous. People burned one of his houses. They broke his windows. And most touching to Judge Meares was the fact that he that someone killed his precious dog. He paid a very very dear price for standing up for the principles that he stood for. Now, John, in the closing moments, let's turn to the modern portion of uh, history relating to the courts here in the Eastern District. Talk a little bit about the maritime jurisdiction, and talk also about why it is a preferred venue for a lot of the national security cases.
2: A lot of the importance of the history of this court is controlled by geographic reasons. From the early days of the Republic, um, you had a lot of admiralty cases. Number one, you have to usually be on a, a navigable ocean to get a lot of admiralty cases. So because of Norfolk, there were a lot of admiralty, and they were important cases, pirates and privateers and prize ships. And it continued right up to the current day. And the reason I mention the current day as far as the maritime jurisdiction is that the invention of these small submersibles changed admiralty jurisdiction. And for that reason, you've had all the litigation pertaining to the Titanic in the Eastern District of Virginia. And a lot of the litigation pertaining to the rights to literally millions of dollars of spanish gold resting on the in galleons on the bottom of the sea uh, has taken place in the eastern district of virginia and only recently and this was too late for my book you had the trial of Span- of somali pirates trial and conviction of somali pirates in the eastern district of virginia but the reason that we haven't gotten into the spies of the terrorists. And I noticed today that Zacharias Massali, who's in the title of my book, was back in the headlines again. You may have seen that. Uh, but the reason you get the spies and the terrorist is because during World War II, and the defense and intelligence communities moved to Northern Virginia. It's a quirk of geography, really, that you, we've ended up trying the most notorious spies in the Eastern District of Virginia, as well as some of the most notorious uh, terrorists, including Zacharias Moussaie, who is, I'm sure many of you know, became known as the 20th hijacker. He was the guy who took the flight lessons in Minnesota and was in jail there when all the other bad guys got on the plane. So he missed the plane, is what it boils down to.
1: Well, John, we do have the reputation in the Eastern District of Virginia of being the rocket docket. <laughs> and uh, we do take pride in being one of the fastest districts in the country. There is one district that claims they process cases faster. But I will tell you, every judge on our court questions their statistics. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that a help or a hindrance? And is that a draw? Is that bring cases into the Eastern District of Virginia that people may want to litigate uh, elsewhere?
2: Oh, absolutely. It brings cases of certain types into the Eastern District in droves. All those people who want their cases adjudicated adjudicated promptly, including certain consumer litigation and patent litigation and certain categories seek out the Eastern District of Virginia to bring their cases here. I always get asked about the rocket docket because it seems to strike a responsive chord with people. When they hear the term rocket docket, they just think that's, that's wonderful. Lawyers don't, didn't think it was all that wonderful when it was <laughs> imposed on them. There used to be a joke, I guess there's still a joke, that there was only one reason for granting a continuance or an extension of a trial date or any other deadline in the Eastern District of Virginia, and that was a death in the family, your own. <laughs> 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 but, 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 and that's the way the rocket docket rocket docket's important from a legal history perspective and for years I didn't fully grasp this myself when I started practicing law the lawyers controlled the pace of litigation the judges never entered into it if you want if the lawyers wanted to bring their case on the trial they wouldn't if they wanted to let it sit on the docket for months or years They could do it, and the judge normally would not interfere. That was the English common law practice. Lawyers controlled the pace of litigation. And what happened when the federal judges instituted the rocket docket was that they were, wittingly or unwittingly, changing several centuries of jurisprudence as to who controlled the pace of litigation. And to their credit, I believe, the judges in the Eastern District of Virginia came out down on the side of uh, justice delayed is justice denied. So, and they've earned a great reputation for it. Scared a lot of lawyers out of their wits along the way. But uh, yes, you cannot talk about the Eastern District of Virginia without
1: talking about the rocket. It's sometimes humorous when lawyers from out of town come into our court and they'll say, Your Honor, we'd like to have uh, a quick trial date. And some of the judges back in the olden days used to say, fine, tomorrow morning, 9.30. (laughs) True story. True story. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the book is uh, Marshall to Massaui, It's by Dease Press. And John Peters is our author. And before we close, do we have time for a few questions? Fine,
0: Okay.
2: Uh, very interesting. Some, some great stories. A procedural question to e- to both of you. Uh, tell us just quickly about the advent and the impact of sentencing guidelines in the
1: federal system. Do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> well, it has changed the dynamics of sentencing in federal courts. And I personally believe that it has taken away an awful lot of the discretion uh, of the trial judges. It does create some uniformity. But there's an overlaying complexity to it. And for those of you who are not lawyers, the Sentencing Guidelines are a book about that thick that tells you how to compute the range of sentencing for defendants based upon a a number of factors. But the practice of sentencing guidelines has taken on a topic unto itself because 23% of the cases, 23% of the cases heard by the Court of Appeals deal with sentencing guidelines, not with the guilt or innocence of the accused. It has begun to overshadow and overtake the entire system. So I was a strong proponent of the sentencing guidelines. I was the United States attorney at the time. Taking a second look as the judge, I'm not so sure they're a good idea. As you observed um, many, many years in judicial actions, does it appear to you that
2: judges, who we once thought were very separate from whatever is going on in society, does it appear to you that they have
1: had any influence by what is going on culturally or in the society, or have they been able to separate themselves and look at the law? I think that's a question for a historian. (laughs) 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 We're grateful to you for that.
2: It's a very complex question. Uh, I don't know whether I'm even capable of uh, addressing that. I, I think that probably there's a tendency for, think, for us to think today that things have changed more than they really have. Uh, I think that our judges, for the most part, are pretty good at separating themselves. I think that one problem is that the law and judicial cases have become such a prominent part of our headlines today uh, that it's, that people do not consider the Judge, they consider the judges to be almost like the ordinary politician, I mean that they're accessible and they're, um, but uh, it seems to me that the good judges for the most part still remain capable of keeping themselves separate and got, not getting caught up in the milieu of culture or society. Uh, but it's a wonderful question and one that really uh, deserves some serious attention. Unfortunately, I haven't given it to <laughs> <laughs> I'll
1: just add that I think almost every federal judge in the nation reads the newspaper, keeps up with cultural events. And I'm sure, subconsciously, it's a factor in the thought process as it is with every other person but I don't think it's dominant. I think of what's concerned to a lot of people, and I go around and talk to a lot of folks around the country, is whether or not a lot of our issues today uh, are being resolved by the judiciary that really should be left to the democratic process. I'll leave it there.
0: I think with that, Judge Hudson,
2: may I ask you to adjourn?